1: seven consecutive above average hurricane seasons in a row. Even though it may not have felt like it, the 2022 hurricane season turned out to be record breaking in so many ways. From Hurricane Alex being the earliest Florida landfall to Hurricane Ian producing a 7.26 feet storm surge in Fort Myers, Florida, to finally capping it off with Hurricane Nicole just a few weeks ago. November 30th marks the end of the Atlantic hurricane season, so we're going to spend this episode looking back at it with the Weather Channel's hurricane expert Dr. Rick Nabb. Dr. Nabb, thanks for joining us on the Weather Geek's podcast.
0: Oh, thank you, Marshall, once again for having me. Great job on the recent episodes as always and that's good to be talking with you again.
1: Well, this is this is really become an annual uh, show and I, I and I'm glad for that because we have one of the top hurricane experts in the world uh, right here at the Weather Channel and you know, I really want to jump right in because we have so much ground to cover, but you know, one of the things our producers wanted to start this episode with, which was a little bit different than how we often start, is what goes into tropical forecasting and particularly sort of this idea that we can assess whether a season's going to be above normal, normal, or below normal. I know people like the Weather Channel, NOAA, uh,
0: the Colorado State Group do it, but what what goes into that? Uh, it really boils down to looking at past seasons and what the overall setup in the atmosphere and ocean were in past seasons, comparing that to the current season, the one ahead, and uh, seeing if you can learn from how those past seasons turned out to put some bounds on how the upcoming season could play out in terms of ocean temperatures and atmospheric circulations and how those relate to one another. And of course, one of the major players in the ocean atmosphere system that heavily influences seasonal hurricane forecast is El Nino and La Nina, the oscillation of warmer than average, cooler than average sea surface temperatures in the Pacific that have an influence on Atlantic basin hurricane season. But even when you have a good idea of what's going on with El Nino, La Nina, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to accurately forecast the numbers of hurricanes and storms. And as this year showed us, Marshall, even when you get two or three months into the season, you might still be scratching your head about how the rest of the season might play out.
1: You know, it really is an interesting point you make, Rick, because I don't think a single hurricane formed in the month of August. And that's something that I wouldn't expect given the projections for the season. So let's now, just August kind
0: of- was August was very unusual, uh, unprecedented, without uh, you know, having any any storms and hurricanes form in that month. But we kept saying uh, that the second half of the season could still play out very differently. It only takes one; uh, could be a late loaded season, that sort of thing, and hoping that that would not play out. But unfortunately, it certainly did.
1: And you're right. And I think as of the this recording, which is mid-November, we're at what, about 14 storms, including Nicole, which I guess is a slightly at or just above I guess, climatological average. But at that point, I remember even in my classes at the University of Georgia, students were saying, well, Dr. Shepard, what what's going on with the hurricane season? Are, are we going to get to an average or above average season? And I, I remember saying something very similar. I said, J- just just give it time. I mean, the, so, uh, the yeah, so
0: now we have, yeah, now we have another year and now we have another year in addition to the likes of 1992 and others where we can really go back to the, it only takes one. Now there was more than one this year. I mean, Fiona was really bad for Canada and Earl was bad for Puerto Rico and Nicole was bad for Florida and other places, but. Uh, You know, in terms of where you live and what you're going to remember from hurricane season and how it affects you for years to come in terms of recovery, it only takes one. And so, uh, wow, does this year uh, show us that no matter what the seasonal forecast says, no matter how you think the seasonal forecast is turning out so far when it's halftime of the hurricane season, do not let your guard down. Do not uh, fail to prepare. And... Uh, there's no reason to expect that uh, any hurricane season is going to let us completely off the hook. Uh, All it takes is one bad hurricane in your town. That's really the only thing we need to focus on. So this is another hard lesson about this hurricane season.
1: Very true. And Hurricane Ian, we're going to beat all over that because there are meteorological discussions that we need to have discussions about risk communication, discussions about the cone. So stick with us in this podcast because we're going to be be all over those topics. But I do want to kind of start, you know, just kind of going through the season, some of the more memorable aspects of the 2022 season. So we had, for example, Hurricane Alex, which was the earliest Florida landfall. And you also mentioned Fiona. Uh, Fiona is another storm that impacted Uh, uh, parts of Puerto Rico, as Maria did, and then became an epic storm for places that we wouldn't expect to be dealing with this type of storm up in parts of Canada. So what are your thoughts on Alex and Fiona?
0: Well, the Fiona episode is a really notable one in terms of the horizontal size and the the way that it evolved and was steered and merged with a a non-tropical system. That, by the way, had a history with that big storm surge event in Alaska, which was connected to a West Pacific typhoon. I mean, amazing how the atmosphere is truly connected and how one event leads to another. But the horizontal size of Fiona and the low-pressure Uh, of that system as it affected Atlantic Canada. Now, my friends in Atlantic Canada, I've interacted with them and known them for a long time, and they've dealt with big hurricanes before, like Igor and Juan, and it goes back a long way. There is such a thing as the Canadian Hurricane Center. So they they know what they're doing. They know they're at risk. But Fiona was um, a little out of the ordinary in terms of its strength and size as it made landfall up there. And then with the, the flooding that we saw in Puerto Rico this year, Uh, just uh, devastating. Um, And it doesn't take a major hurricane like Maria to cause a major disaster in local areas due to water. We learn that every year it seems that water is more damaging and deadly than we give it credit for sometimes.
1: And and with Fiona and Puerto Rico, and again, just want to send our our thoughts to to folks in Puerto Rico because you've dealt with Maria recently and, and Fiona As I recall, Rick, and, you know, definitely correct me if I'm wrong, the forward speed on Fiona slowed some as it was lingering uh, near uh, Puerto Rico, as I recall. Uh, How did that impact the rain production, flooding and even landslides and mudslides?
0: Yeah, uh, another category slow storm. And, you know, when we look at an advisory, we so often look at the maximum sustained winds, the category the the major uh typical uh numbers associated with an advisory, but there's two other numbers that we need to look at more often and that is forward speed and horizontal size and uh, when you take a slow moving wet system and then you have it interact with a complex terrain like puerto rico then you're going to have flooding disasters uh, with something that is quote-unquote only a category one hurricane and puerto rico was on the wrong side the onshore flow side from the south and it just squeezed out a ton of moisture and uh, the the infrastructure damage was tremendous and so you know it, it is always important to the water hazards and not focus just on the strength and status of the system. Yeah,
1: I, I want to echo that. And we'll talk a little bit more about all of those things because I think the size of the storm that Dr. Nab's talking about, and I, I'll interchangeably call Dr. Nab, Dr. Nab, and Rick because we've known each other a long time. Um, but even with Ian, I think the whole Ian Charlie comparison, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, was dangerous in some ways, but also this idea that just a tropical storm or just a Category 1 storm, and we certainly saw uh, what that means for a place like Puerto Rico under these situations. Let me take a quick break, Rick, and we'll come right back and we'll talk about Ian. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with the hurricane expert at the Weather Channel, Dr. Rick Nav. And let me give you a little bit of Dr. Nav's background. Uh, he was at the National Hurricane Center from August 2001 to 2010. He served as a science operations officer and senior hurricane special, uh, specialist during that stint. Uh, and then he headed off to Honolulu to the National Weather Service and where He held uh, positions as director of operations at the National Weather Service Honolulu and the deputy director of the Central Pacific Hurricane Center. And then he joined the Weather Channel, but only for a short time in the uh, early 2010s, and then became the director of the National Hurricane Center from June 2022 to 2017, and then decided to return to the Weather Channel, where he has been the hurricane expert uh, since 2017. So clearly, uh, if you listen to that resume, Dr. Nab knows hurricanes very well from multiple perspectives. I mean, I I know Dr. Nab from our time at Florida State when he was working on his doctorate, and so he knows it from a science perspective, he knows it from a forecast perspective, and a risk communication perspective. It's a, always a pleasure to talk to Dr. Nab. Now, the big marquee and devastating storm of this season—you talk about one storm. Hurricane Ian. And there are so many places that we can go with the discussion of the storm. But let's start, Rick, with just the meteorology. How was the track forecast? How was the intensity forecast for Ian in your view?
0: Uh, In my view, by modern standards, the forecasts were very good. Uh, First of all, consider the fact that the formation and rapid intensification uh, in the Western Caribbean was pretty well anticipated. Uh, We were for days as meteorologists talking about the expectation that it would become a major hurricane in the Western Caribbean and that we were going to have a major hurricane in the eastern Gulf of Mexico thereafter. So uh, that part was really not much of a surprise. And despite all the conversation about uh, whether or not uh, Ian was inside or outside the cone and the impacts in and out of the cone and all of that, Even though the size of the cone has been shrinking year by year over the last few decades because of the improvement in track forecast, the center of IAN stayed within every forecast cone as as regards to the the landfall location of the center of IAN uh, in southwest Florida. So uh, despite the fact that the forecasts weren't perfect by modern standards, they were very, very good. So uh, I don't think we can expect a whole lot more in terms of forecast accuracy um in the present day than what we got. If if one is hoping for more accurate forecasts to solve all of the problems we had with the preparation and the impacts with the end, I think you're going down the wrong path because while we do hope and anticipate forecasts will get better and continue to get better. By modern standards, the Ian forecasts were quite good, and so I think we need to be looking elsewhere in terms of how we communicate the hazards and how we prepare for and respond to hurricanes as being our top uh, uh, items that we need to work on the most.
1: And you know, I wrote about that very point that you just make because if you look at the last fifty years, our track forecast have, have tr- uh, improved dramatically. Uh, if, if you look at you know a three-day forecast back in nineteen seventy. Uh, it's about as good or as a one or a one day forecast is today. I mean, in other words, our 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 one our one day forecast is tremendous, but um, you compare that to 50 years ago and it's outstanding. So, you know, something that we can predict three days out today was really the error for a one day forecast uh, 50 years ago. Um, the track forecasting has improved but yet we will never, and I want to repeat this, we will probably never, and I think Dr. Nab would agree with this, be able to give you the exact track of a, of a hurricane in a forecast three days out. And that is why we have to give information with uncertainty. And right now, the way that is done, and or one of the main ways it's done, is using the cone of uncertainty. And as you mentioned, Dr. Nab, and I think I heard you say this in several places, Uh, I guess from Friday up to landfall, Fort Myers and Lee County were always in the cone. So, can you tell the listeners what that means to be in the cone?
0: Yeah, again, the cone is uh, a way of conveying the uncertainty in the forecast of the track of the center of the storm or the hurricane. And for all of its uh, challenges and ways it's misinterpreted, it, it, you're always going to have to have some kind of depiction of where the storm is going. If you were to get rid of the cone, as some people are suggesting, well, the, what are we going to rely on uh, the model spaghetti tracks? And there there will always be um, a depiction of where the system is forecast to go with the associated uncertainty and the spread of where the possible tracks will take it. And But that's all it conveys. Uh, that's all the track models conveys where the center probably will go or could go and we're always going to have a track depiction, but we're always also going to have to understand where the local location specific wind and water hazards could occur and the cone has never and will never convey that you're always going to have to have other products and other watches and warnings that convey where the wind and water hazards are going to occur. So uh, I I know a lot of people still misinterpret the cone to mean if I'm in the cone, I'm at risk. If I'm outside of the cone, I'm not. And that is incorrect interpretation of it. We still need to work on that. But however it is uh, that we modify the cone or even if we got rid of it and went to some other track depiction with models, you're always gonna have a track depiction about the storm that doesn't tell you the whole story. And the real story lies in forecasts and products and warnings about what wind, what water could happen where you live.
1: A really good point. I'm talking with Dr. Rick Nabb of the Weather Channel, their Weather Channel hurricane expert. And, you know, I saw Brian McNulty, a colleague of ours down at University of Miami, talking about that the cone is basically a two-thirds or 66% chance that the center is anywhere in that cone. And so he was making the point is that if you were had a a two out of three chance of being impacted by something, uh, you probably should at least pay attention to it, even if you're sort of thinking that it's headed elsewhere. In this case, I think there was a good deal of discussion about uh, early on about Tampa, Florida being sort of ground zero, if you will, for the uh, landfall of the storm but even at that time as, as you noted the 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 region of that actually became the landfall region was always within the cone and that cone is accounting for that uncertainty in the track forecast so though our track forecasts are, are good uh, they will never be exact and so that's an right. important point
0: the it is tool- and also that that yeah that area uh, uh, on the right edge of the cone uh, you know the center Uh, the landfall location was always within the cone or on the right edge of the forecast cone on every advisory. But there were there were always areas or often areas outside the cone that were also severely impacted by the storm surge. And we had storm surge watches go up a couple days plus before landfall inside and outside the cone with significant four to seven feet or more storm surge forecasted even at that early time frame. So, uh, you know, it could have been the case back in the day, you know, before we had a storm surge warning uh, that started operationally in 2017, that you could say that the storm surge uh, outside the cone uh, in Fort Myers Beach in Naples in Ian came without warning. But you can't say that this year because it came with a storm surge watch and then a storm surge warning, with, in my view, enough time to issue evacuation instructions and enough time. Uh, to evacuate if you're able to, and to help people get out if they're not able to.
1: One one big thing that I noticed in the discussion of Hurricane Ian is people in that region remembered Charlie, and as our yes. our mutual colleague Stu Ostro tweeted, I, I think Charlie fit in the eye of Ian. It was a much smaller storm. Of yes. than, than Ian. And so talk about the implications and danger of that sort of analog comparison between uh, Ian and Charlie and perhaps uh, decision-making process that some people may have uh, considered.
0: Yeah. And it goes back to one of the, the topics we talked about earlier on this podcast about other aspects of the hurricane, other than the max sustained winds and the, and the track and that is horizontal size. And Ian was much larger than Charlie and Along a similar, in some ways, identical track in terms of the landfall location, you take a much larger Ian and you have a completely different storm surge flooding outcome on Fort Myers Beach with Ian than you did with Charlie. And I, you know, we heard people beforehand and after, those who survived the storm surge, say that, well, I, I, I went through Charlie, uh, so I thought I'd be okay in this one. And we we as humans often make that mistake of using a past weather event, or I've been through Charlie, I've been through Irma, I've been through all these other ones, I figured I could make it through this one, I know what I'm doing with hurricanes, and then a hurricane that behaves in ways you've never seen before, uh, but in ways we knew were quite possible, happens. And we've always known that Southwest Florida is one of the most vulnerable storm surge areas in the country, rivaling some of the most vulnerable areas in the world the concave-shaped coastline, the shallow waters for miles off of the beach and the uh, low-lying land areas, the storm surge evacuation zones that were in place years and years ago go miles inland from the coast. And that larger hurricane uh, was able to do a lot more storm surge damage and take more lives than Charlie because of the horizontal size. But the storm surge watch and warning, the new storm surge flooding map that the Hurricane Center has, that we instituted while I was there, uh, those products account for variations in not only track, but also intensity and also size. So that's why the storm surge watch and then warning were up even outside the cone for multiple days in advance because that risk was real. And it did play out that Fort Myers Beach got the highest storm surge flooding, double digits feet above ground.
1: No, I was watching you in real time, Rick, on the Weather Channel. And during that time, I remember you talking about the sort of perpendicular nature or the coastline shape and how the storm was coming in and the angle of attack, if you will, and how that may have been amplifying some of the severity of the surge. Uh, talk a little bit about what, what points you were making. You were making these in real time about the sort of the angle of the storm and the coastline shape uh, and so forth.
0: Yeah, with that concave-shaped part of the coastline of southwestern Florida that Fort Myers Beach is right in the middle of, that captures the water as it's being pushed toward the coastline um, on the right-hand side of a landfalling hurricane. And Fort Myers Beach got the worst of it, not just because of that shape of the coastline, but because the larger Ian, as compared to Charlie, uh, put its radius of maximum winds, its maximum push toward the coastline, pushing the Gulf of Mexico waters onto the ground uh, was maximized right into that concave shape coastline, right onto Fort Myers beach. And that's why we got 10 to 15 feet preliminarily of storm surge flooding above normally dry ground on Fort Myers beach. And it's why we got the seven feet of, uh, Way up the Clusacee River up in Fort Myers, but that's more than a dozen miles from the coastline. The, the hurricanes' right-hand side pushed the Gulf waters up the Clusacee River, and you had a storm surge miles and miles, and so it was not just a beachfront problem. So, but but again, this is a scenario. That we've known for decades is possible that's why we've known southwest florida is so vulnerable to storm surge that it's a challenging area to evacuate and why its evacuation zones go so far inland but a lot of people said uh you know beforehand and then those who survived said afterward uh i didn't think it could get that high you know up to the second floor of sto- of structures but you know, when You are when you're forecasting even four to seven feet of storm surge flooding, and then as it gets closer, you refine that to more than 10, 12, 15 feet, we're serious about that. Um, and that's why evacuation is so important, why, why timely evacuation instructions are so important and why getting everybody out when those instructions go out is the only way to ensure safety of life, because the only way to ensure you survive storm surge is to not be there when it happens.
1: Other aspects of the storm that caught my attention with Ian is that a tremendous amount of rainfall across a swath of the central peninsula of Florida, even over to the eastern coast of Florida. I have friends in Daytona Beach and they talked about flooding. And even today, people are still recovering from flooding there due to the rainfall and the inland freshwater flooding. And then you had another landfall in the Carolinas as well. So uh, any things that catch your attention or eye, Rick, after the main landfall of the storm?
0: Yeah, and, and again, this is before Nicole. This is just Ian by itself in northeastern Florida. We had a damaging and deadly storm surge and wave event. We lost lives in northeastern Florida as Uh, a much weaker Hurricane Ian, but still potent, was moving off of the Florida coastline. And we had evacuation instructions there and not everybody got out. And then we had a Category 1 landfall uh, in South Carolina. And we had a storm surge. Uh, It wasn't as high as in Florida, but there were still voluntary evacuations called uh, in the Charleston area, for example. And then all the other water impacts devastating water impacts in the Florida Peninsula due to the rainfall because of a pretty large and relatively slow-moving, lopsided hurricane at that point. And then the rainfall-induced flooding and and the tree falls and so forth in the Carolinas. Uh, Ian left a path of destruction uh, mainly due to water, but largely due to wind as well. And when I look at the event in total, the thing that I keep going back to is we have learned from Ian the hard way uh, what uh, I and others feared for a long time was coming, a, a another big storm surge event that could take dozens of lives. And uh, as much as it was important for us to be happy about the relatively small numbers in terms of loss of life from storm surge, since the storm surge warning was implemented half a decade ago, we knew that if we didn't get everybody out uh, that we could still lose a lot of people in storm surge. So we, we got the new storm surge warning. You got evacuation instructions. But we're not getting everybody out. So, Marshall, I, I, I think we as a society need to work from this point forward to figure out how to get everybody out. Evacuation, evacuation compliance from those who can and evacuation assistance for those who can't. Too many of the people in Ian's path, Southwest Florida, Northeast Florida, even to some extent in the Carolinas. Too many people didn't evacuate when told, even though they had the ability. And a lot of people couldn't evacuate because they don't have the means or they're medically vulnerable. And we need to work together as a society, so many different lines of work, different types of professionals to make that turn out different next time and get everybody out.
1: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
0: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
1: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with my colleague, Dr. Rick Nabb from the Weather Channel and talking about the 2022 hurricane season. And we've been focusing on Ian, but I want to shift now to a late season storm. And it was an interesting storm in many ways. First of all, a uh, subtropical uh, storm, Nicole, which eventually became a hurricane, Nicole, this storm had a fairly large wind field itself that's been a recurring theme of the discussion Dave at almost 500 miles north of the center had a pretty impressive wind field uh, but where I want to start this conversation Rick is our listeners may be confused or may be wondering well why was it called initially a subtropical storm so what what is the that terminology refer to
0: well the best way that I have come up with to explain what a subtropical storm is is to call it, And I actually wouldn't be against permanently, officially calling these storms hybrid storms. Everybody knows what a hybrid vehicle is, right? It operates on two kinds of fuels, the gas and electric. And it can go back and forth, and uh, it it, it can operate on two kinds of fuels. Similarly, a subtropical storm is not a frontal system. It's not a completely mid-latitude, extratropical, non-tropical system. It's a hybrid and it runs off two kinds of fuels the warm waters of the oceans and to some extent temperature contrast but not to the extent where it has fronts so it's a hybrid storm and people often ask well why make the distinction you know why call it a subtropical storm why write advisories on it and nicole was a perfect example of why we call them out as different than tropical storms and why the Hurricane Center writes advisories on them. Number one, if you were to see the way Nicole looked at the beginning and, you know, some people say, well, why don't you just call it a tropical storm? Well, if you did, then the whole conversation would be, uh, that doesn't look like a tropical storm. Are you guys sure you know what you're talking about? you lose credibility, you know, so you got to call it what it is. And it you know, it was obviously not a tropical storm when it first formed. It was a hybrid. Uh, But the other reason that the Hurricane Center writes advisories on them is because they can become tropical storms and even hurricanes. And that was the expectation from early on with Nicole. But, Marshall, the other thing about Nicole is that it wasn't working alone. There was this big high pressure system to the north. And because of its subtropical origins, Nicole was large anyway on its own. But it wasn't working alone. It had that high pressure system to the north that produced this tremendous what we call fetch, the wind blowing for 1,500 miles over the Atlantic toward the northeast coast of Florida and the southeast U.S. And Nicole was working with Ian, not at the same time, but in the same place. The damage to the dune structures and the beaches that Ian caused on the east coast of central northern Florida made the damage that Nicole produced much more possible.
1: And this is really the nature of these compound events that we're hearing more and more discussion about, and I I think you really sort of excellently explain these compound disasters in terms of two weather systems working together, or even a previous weather system and the destruction and damage being exacerbated or amplified by by a new system. So I think that's and and
0: Nicole Nicole was a beach erosion disaster primarily. That's really what did the damage. That's what took away the beach and took away the land underneath the foundations of homes and condos that made parts of the homes collapse uh, and made the condos unsafe to live in. And there's going to have to be some really difficult conversations about. Uh, whether or not you can build those homes back in that same spot or whether or not we're just going to have to pull back from the coastline. It would be a very expensive proposition to put the land, not just the dunes, back to the way they were on the coast in places like Daytona Beach Shores and Wilbur-by-the-Sea.
1: Rick, for this last segment, I've got a quick rapid fire question answer for you. Sure. Uh, I'm going to, going to put four terms before you, and I want to get your sort of immediate thoughts of, of whether there are still things that we can do to improve them. So I'm, I'm going I'm to mention the topic and then just a short answer whether, of what you think, whether there is any need for additional improvement, and if so, what? So first one I'm going to talk about is storm surge.
0: Storm surge has far more tools in the box than it used to. Storm surge watch and warning storm surge flooding map we we need to use those tools more ian showed us that they're not used as much as they need to be and we need to make a storm surge warning as famous as a tornado warning and take actions even outside the cone accordingly flooding flooding continues to be the most common and expensive and often deadliest disasters in this country it's not just some tropical storms and hurricanes think back to the kentucky and st louis events from earlier this year and we are not insured for flood somehow we've got to change how things work in this country to get everybody insured for flood the tornado threat tornadoes are still a damaging and high profile hazard that we can build better for and that we can act immediately when warnings are issued not try to go outside and confirm the warning but we can build better for tornadoes they don't have to cause as much damage as they do and please put safe rooms tornado safe rooms inside these large warehouses where people have died while working
1: yeah and you you alluded to this I, i i want to ask you a question about it but even in one of my classes at the university of georgia we were watching some things about hurricanes and we we found some data i think from the federal government that said even in those regions of lee county and coastal florida florida uh, many people i think it was around 50 ish percent or more don't have proper insurance uh, given that don't they have live in the high that's
0: correct yeah yeah yeah. i was, I was, it's was in the single sc- digits it's in the single yeah, digits I, percentage I, wise in some of the inland areas in florida and florida overall is better off than most states in terms of flood insurance take up but my goodness marshall we need to i think uh what would help is for somehow for the insurance enterprise to no longer separately insure wind and flood we need to have policies that cover for everything however that needs to be structured so that we aren't having people uh you know choose not to get flood insurance and we need the insurance industry all the insurance agents to tell people to get flood insurance too many people are told by their insurance agent that they can't get flood insurance or they don't need flood insurance uh there's not as much financial incentive for insurance agents to get people insured for flood as there as there is for other hazards and perils so man put uh, put it all under one policy and just get rid of the problem uh because we haven't we're just spinning our wheels trying to get people insured for flood. We need to change the system.
1: And I haven't even and you haven't even talked about the sort of impacts of our shifting climate, changing climate and oh my, how it yes lead to more intense storm, not, not more in terms of number, but uh, stronger storms on average, which means we we looked at this region in my class that Southwest Florida Coast, I think, had a recurrence interval for this level of storm of about 18 years, which works out between 2004 for Charlie and 2022 for Ian. So we know naturally these storms are going to happen and uh, climate change may be sort of priming the pump for stronger storms. And so that really amplifies your point about uh, insurance and, and the, the right uh, plans. And, and, and even
0: if yeah, even if the numbers and strengths of hurricanes aren't changing and don't change, and they're probably changing somewhat, especially the proportion of hurricanes that are stronger, peaking out higher intensity, um, even though I don't think the numbers of tropical storms overall are are, are changing very much. Absolutely, if, they are Yeah, Yeah, even if those things, even if the numbers aren't changing, even if the intensities aren't changing, I'm concerned about other aspects like, forward speed slowing down, horizontal size may be getting a little bit larger, and the the water impacts getting worse because of higher rain rates, higher sea levels. And uh, the impacts are absolutely getting worse. And uh, that aspect of our changing climate ought to be more motivation for us to change these systems that uh, aren't working for us, the flood insurance, the way we do things, uh, not giving people enough evacuation assistance to get people out. We got to get to work on these things and the climate changing should give us even more motivation to get on it.
1: Final question. Are there any ways that we can assess the 2023 season at this point, or is it just too early?
0: That'd be very interesting to see how much longer La Nina holds on. This is our third La Nina year. Uh, you would think at some point the atmosphere will go back to uh, to neutral or El Nino. But um, but I think after the way this hurricane season played out with all the expectations that we thought we had a good handle on, all the curveballs the season threw us, giving us this head fake of the first half of the season being pretty quiet and then the second half being absolutely devastating and busier, that we should focus on the seasonal forecasts in terms of how it will uh dictate what we do even less we have to get ready every hurricane season and we have to do more on the various issues that we've talked about all i can tell you is that next year's hurricane season has the potential to bring at least one devastating impact to someone who's listening right now and you will be much better off if you prepare in advance for that possibility rather than hoping that it doesn't happen to you it is going to happen eventually to so many of us and we have to prepare individually and we have to prepare as a society to get ready better and to respond better
1: and i would add to that with so many sort of above average seasons in a row there are communities that have been devastated by storms you know like laura or ian or so forth and you know, they may face another storm and they haven't recovered from those storms. So I just really am particularly concerned about those communities. Do- Dr. Nab, as always, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
0: And as always, Marshall, thank you so much for having me. Love the show, as always, and have a happy holiday season. And there will be a lot to talk about in the upcoming months to get ready for next hurricane season.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and thank thank you for all that you do on the network. I mean, look, I, mean, I know people have their choice in where they watch uh, their information on the weather, but I I truly think you're a national resource, and so just thank you for for everything that you're
0: doing. Yeah, as are you. Thank right. you, Marshall.
1: I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on Weather Weatherbeaks.